This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Do you ever have the dream of just moving to the forest and never living in a city again? Well, today we're talking to Scott, whose podcast, Driving the Future, discusses all the topics of homesteading and the difficulties thereof. We're going to be diving into the challenges and also the benefits of living off of the grid as much as possible. I'm moving to the woods. Hopefully, maybe you'll join us there. Let's dive in. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have another great episode lined up for you guys. We have Scott on the line from Thriving the Future podcast. Scott, how's it going? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Good. And Ryan, how are you doing today? Second one today. I think it's our first two in one day podcast, so it's exciting to see your face again. Yeah, yeah, I tried to make it a little different. So I got the red light going on because it's the evening. Well, you'll see me kind of lean over to re-up the time on it because this has a timer on it, unlike my other one. But I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I kind of like it. I can't see you guys as well, but I mean, it works out. We're all about protecting from that artificial light on this show. So definitely more to come there. (laughs) But Scott, you have a pretty cool background and, you know, a lot of similar interests, of course. I think you talk a lot about decentralization on on your show. So I'm curious, kind of, you know, what, what is your backstory? How did you kind of reach this inflection point of realizing that these are things worth valuing and, you know, getting into homesteading, of course, we can discuss more about. But what was kind of the moment for you where everything kind of became clear that this stuff is is really important. Yeah, so I'm a IT project manager by job and I'm sitting, let's see, 10 years ago, sitting in uh, the cafeteria in my workplace downtown Kansas City. And across the street is the main park where all the protests happen. This is before, you know, all the super duper protests around 2016 and everything. And they were already having protests there. And they said um, we may have to let you go home early because you may not be able to get out of the parking lot. So my friend and I, who was a prepper, were talking and uh, he said, okay, so what would you do if you couldn't get home right now? And the roads are blocked. You can't get home. And uh, what would you do? And we started talking about bug out bags. We started talking about prepping and stuff like that. And then that may really made me think. And then along those, that same journey then I started looking into, um, Starting looking into land, moved from a townhouse in town out to ten acres in northeast Kansas. We've got we've got horses, we've got a donkey, we've got twenty chickens, we've got gardens, and every year I grow the gardens a little bit. I extend the gardens a little bit more. So last year I extended the orchard and the gardens by eighty feet. So um, trying lots of different things and started working really on. At the same time, I started having like like you were talking about, Tristan, I've had some post-concussion problems as well and started having memory problems. And a lot of it was taken care of by doing the AIP, you know, the autoimmune protocol and cutting out a lot of those things and moving more towards a paleo, you know, keto type diet. And it, and it really helped that as well as growing my own my own food. And once we started out here 
it really became apparent because it's really hard to like even get hay for your horses that's not sprayed. And that spray goes right through your horses, ends up in the manure, and then it ends up in your compost in your garden. So, you know, it's just like a whole cycle where it's all screwy, you know. So sort of just for reference, could you give our listeners sort of an idea if they haven't heard of you before, just sort of where you're located at and sort of just like how you came to be in where you are? Yeah. So I'm in Northeast Kansas, um, about an hour. I'm a Kansas man, by the way, from Kansas. Oh yeah. Born and raised. Yeah. Well, not born, but raised. So I'm right outside of, I'm right outside of Lawrence up in Northeast Kansas, about a hour west of uh, Kansas City. Nice. Beautiful country out there. I grew up in uh, McPherson. Very oh, yeah. kind of, I guess, I guess it's really not the smallest town in the world because I know many people that come from towns of like a thousand or less people. So 13,000 people, but it, it felt like one of those towns that you can just kind of drive through. If you're on, if you're on the highway, you'll just miss it. You'll drive by sure. the sign and it'll be gone. So very familiar with, uh, with the landscape out there. So you kind of talk about your background with dealing with concussion and, and sort of finding the AIP, which I find to be sort of like a very good beginning step for a lot of people that I've met in the community that have dealt with some pretty like pretty nasty health issues. Like AIP is usually where people start. Maybe they kind of migrate into keto or animal based or something like that, depending right. on their issues. But it's amazing the amount of healing you can do when you sort of break down the the nuances of, of, of just the basic eating whole foods and cutting out things like processed gluten and stuff like that, that's on AIP. So I think it's very powerful. What kind of led you from there to sort of, I know you sort of brought up this discussion of, well, I'm on, I'm on the road here, but what if I can't get home? Right. And sort of this idea of homesteading, what sort of brought you to that side of things? Cause that's like diet's one thing and diet can be extreme for sure. Like it can be a drastic change, but this idea of sort of like uprooting the way we all live our lives is even greater. So kind of tell us about how that became a fruition for you and sort of why that even happened. Sure. So I was living in a townhouse in town in Lawrence, driving an hour each way to Kansas City and spending a lot of time on the road uh, talking about the prepping thing. I started looking into it, started um, canning my own food at home and, um, and then, of course, then I found the usual prepper podcasts like Jack Spirko and things like that. Started hearing more about homesteading and growing your own food, having your own place, having chickens and all that other stuff. And, uh, and we had so I lived down in Wichita, just south of McPherson for 20 years. And we had a horse place, but we didn't really have a garden or anything like that. So this was an opportunity for us to get out of the town and and uh, get 10 acres, get my wife, get her horses out of boarding and get them out on her own pasture and uh, start growing some of our own food. And one of the things that really stands out as you start doing that is how long it takes to develop the skill, how long it takes to rid your ground of the, of the, the bad stuff. Right. So all of the ground is uh is just addicted to the fertilizers and the, and everything else. And you start growing it and it's like failure, 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 year two, not so much failure and, uh, and things like that. I got some compost from, from town and it's supposed to be organic, but it came from, it came from municipal, uh, lawn waste. So it had some residual stuff in it and it killed my stuff. And I'm like, Oh man. 
So, you know, things like that. A lot of it is developing those skills. Yeah, we we talked a lot about that earlier today with John Pantalone from Ember Oaks. Just kind of people don't realize how much work and skills are needed in order to be successful in, in homesteading. I think it's like often people bite off more than they can chew or, it, you know, it's romanticized to an essence online nowadays, I think. Because they show all the, you know, the cute animals and the lovely scenery, but they don't show all the really hard work that goes into it. And, you know, 10 acres to some people may sound like, oh, that's nothing. You know, I need like way more than that. But in reality, it's more than enough. Um, It's a lot to manage. And I'm curious, you know, you're saying there's kind of a lot of, you know, learning curve that you had in the you know, early few years, such as, you know, getting rid of, you know, the chemical, the residual chemicals or fertilizers on the land. Is there something you wish you would have done when you first were looking for plots of land, like, you know, soil tests or or water tests or things like that? Or I'm just trying to give a picture for, you know, listeners, if they're in this position and they're they're looking for land, like what what kind of tips do do you recommend? Yeah, I think uh, the main thing that I don't have a very good backup on is water. So I have, I have county water, but if something happens, I don't have a, I don't have a backup. I don't have a stream. I, you know, I've got IBC totes that are full of water, but I don't really have a backup. So I would look for more of a a water source, you know, a natural water source. Um, if I was looking again, um, and then a lot of it is, is just the amount of infrastructure you have to put in, you know, separating out the pastures for the horses, building chicken shed um, and then getting used to getting used to predators carrying your chickens off. Right. (laughs) So we, we uh, free range our chickens. And so they're running around during the day and, and, and things. And we just, we had a predator attack the day before yesterday and lost a rooster and a, and a hen. So, you know, where'd it go? Are they going to come back? (laughs) You know, are they just scared and they're off in the woods or are they going to come back? You know, things like that. So having to deal with that is, is challenging. Is it mostly coyotes or what do you got out there? So we have, yeah, we have coyotes, we have owls, we have, um, hawks, and then, uh, apparently some stray dog or something came through here, um, the other day. So I imagine there are a lot of, are there coyotes out there as well? Oh yeah. Lots of coyotes. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause I was like, I, I knew people that, um, had chickens in, in California and they have to deal with coyotes like constantly like getting their chickens and stuff like that, especially if they free range them all. My, my cousin lives outside of San Francisco, a little more inland and they have some land and they've been free ranging chickens and stuff out there. And they say they lose them. If like, if they're not careful, they'll lose them to coyotes or even a mountain lion or something crazy like that. So there's sort of these things that I think you have to pre-plan or get sort of the idea in your head that things may happen and be mm-hmm. okay with it. And keep moving forward. I think there's a lot of persistence in this stuff. It's definitely not for somebody that isn't willing to persist. I actually kind of want to go back for a quick second, just because I'm curious, talking about soil and sort of replenishing soil health. We've we've talked a lot about that on the podcast with mm-hmm. different regenerative ranchers and and various things that they use with their animals to sort of make the soil more vital for growth for crop, but also just in general to replenish soil that's been depleted over the last, you know, 70 years of monocrop agriculture or longer. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about getting started, I know you mentioned like your first year's yield is probably going to be crap and your second year might be a little better, but sort of talk us through the process of 
One is there are ways to mitigate these issues where you'll have better yield quicker, meaning like when you're looking for land, is there certain types of land that are more ideal? Are there certain things on the land? I know you mentioned water source as being one of those things mm -hmm. that you would look for in plots of land, but are there other things you would look for as far as like how it's sloped? Is it hilly? Various things like that, depending on grazing and stuff like that. And then also what are sort of the preparations you did so that you know that you'll get better yield in future years, obviously composting and stuff, but I'd kind of like to hear your story of how you did what you sure. did. So I have very compacted clay soil. And so, you know, it'll just run right off. So what I did was I started bringing in, I brought, started bringing in compost and soil at first, and then just covering everything in wood chips. Wood chips was really the, the game changer. Because, um, you know, I, if, if I plant a tomato, even though I have pretty good soil now, if I plant a tomato, it's going to dry out pretty quick. So we're keeping wood chips around there. Um, taking uh, cardboard, doing lasagna mulching, cardboard, compost, um, other, uh, other things, and then just leaving it with wood chips on it. And then after a season or so, then you'll get a pretty good garden bed. And one of the things that I started last year was a um, milpa gardening. So this is a mix that I got from the from the uh, green cover seed company, and it's got like forty seeds in it. That uh, it's it's mainly around corn, squash, and beans, the three sisters, and then it throws in a whole bunch of stuff: cucumbers, squash, all this stuff, and beans and and some flowers. So I went and I turned over a fresh area with a broad fork. That's the thing you stand on and then you can turn soil over. I turned the soil over, just turned it over, um, threw the seed on top of it and then put some wood chips on top of that. And then it, uh, it came up. So I had squash, I had a little bit of corn and a little bit of beans, but then at the end of the season, I had dry beans. Plus I had all of this mulch and thatch and things like that. So it, it built, the soil with the with the nitrogen from the beans, and then it also was an excellent cover crop during the wintertime. I could just chop and slash and and lay it out, and it was uh, it covered the soil, so that helped a lot. I was able to turn around a a new area in the garden without having to haul in a bunch of stuff besides besides wood chips. Hey, friend! Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast. It would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, I think, again, it highlights, yeah, kind of the uniqueness and just difference between everyone's like land and you kind of have to solve this this puzzle your, yourself with trial and error and right. it's going to take some time in the beginning. But I'm curious, you know, where are you researching a lot of this stuff, these tactics? Like, is there any good resources out there for people that you think has helped you a bunch in terms of inspiring creativity and what to try out? Or, yeah, what do you recommend for, for that if people want to learn more or are in that similar starting situation? Sure. There's a lot of permaculture stuff on building soil. Um, you know, Elaine, I think her name is Elaine Ingram and things like that. And getting soil tests, um, and that's that's where I get most of my information from. Um, I also I set up some uh, some food forests. I 
one of the things planting apples, apple trees want irrigation. So they can't pretty much be left alone. So I had a bunch of failures with that. So I started, uh, I started, um, I hand dug some swales, which are ditches and, and mounds. I just took a broad fork, dug it on contour, took it and folded it over into a mound and then planted my apples into that. And then as the water runs down the slope, it'll catch in the swale and then infiltrate into the mound instead of just running off. And that seemed to help a lot for my apples for areas that I wouldn't necessarily water all the time. So, you know, that was, um, that was a pretty, I got that from permaculture from, uh, um, yeah, from uh, Permaculture Apprentice, from Mark Shepard, things like that. And soil testing, just just quickly here, is that something you've done through independent laboratories or universities? Something that I think my sister stumbled upon is that actually like local universities are pretty willing and, and for a cost-effective manner able to do soil testing. It might take a little bit longer, but I know, you know it's, it's a lot more cost-effective than a third-party lab. Yeah, sure. So um, you could get a rudimentary soil test over at Home Depot, but you can also go through your county county extension. They'll do soil testing. You can go through the the university if there's one close to you, or and things like that. Um, to some extent, you can also take a big quart mason jar and fill it up with soil, and then let it settle out. Some people put water in it and shake it up. Some people don't. And then it'll settle out and you'll get a general idea of what kind of your, what mix up of your soil you have. And there's, you know, there's several different ways to do that. Um, early on, I brought in soil. So it was like, if I tested it, it would be different from here to, you know, five feet over. But uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward now. Um, just for reference for um, sort of a high level remark, could we uh, just curiously, What's the, what's sort of the importance of, of soil testing? Like what, what do you, what knowledge do you gain from that? I mean, I, I know, but I just didn't think it'd be good for anyone that doesn't know the, the purpose of soil testing. Sure. The, the reason you would do it in this situation. Right. So mine's like all clay. It's very, very alkaline. Some people have a whole very acidic and then you're going to have, you want to get a certain pH level in the middle there for, um, for tomatoes and, and things like that. So, um, you either, you either have to add lime, you have to add something that would make it less alkaline. It all depends. Right. And, um, so getting that soil test, you can get an idea of how, how well does your soil infiltrate with water? And then also, um, what kind of stuff do I need to add? And a lot of these soil around here are just compacted. They, you could, you could go down the street to where they've plowed and they're getting ready to plant. And it's like Mars. There's, there's nothing living in that soil at this point. So you have to bring in a lot of organic matter to make up and allow those worms and everything else. They're just not going to start on their own. Um, you need to bring in organic matter, whether it be manure or whatever else, um, compost, and things. The challenge with manure is that, like I said, the hay is sprayed around here. So if you have cow manure, or you have horse manure, you have to be careful because that stuff will go through and it'll stay in the compost and in your garden for two or three years. Um, so, but at this point, I, I, our horses have hay 
that wasn't sprayed. So I use that and mix it in and like lasagna it out with a bunch of different layers of things in the fall. And then it'll be ready to plant in the, in the spring. I mean, the Midwest is kind of like, you know, it's, it's tornado alley, but it's also glyphosate alley. Right. So I, I'm curious, you know, is this something that you realized right off the bat and how did you go about procuring hay or, you know, what have you that's free of all these chemicals? Was it like a real big challenge and getting into the community aspect, assuming you seem like you've built somewhat of a, a good connection. I don't know how much is, is hyper local, but is sure. this something that a lot of folks are talking about or worried about? And is there any, you know, bigger influence that you can have in a, in a state like Kansas where there's so much um, emphasis on, on, on GMO crops and, and glyphosate? Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot of it is knowing individual farmers. So if you're driving down the if you're driving down the road and you see a hay field and it doesn't have any weeds in it at all, and it doesn't have any secession plants, then they've been spraying it. Right. Um, we, we asked around and some horse, um, barns that we knew or horse stables that we knew they, uh, they knew folks that had hay that, that wasn't sprayed. And you could tell cause it would have some other kinds of clover and stuff mixed in or, you know, and things. So we started getting that and then using that, I think um, some of the compost that I brought in or the wood chips I had brought in sometimes had, like I said, some of that stuff in it. And then um, I had to sequester some of that to get, to let it get out, you know, beans came up and then they immediately died, things like that. So it's hit or miss, but um, a lot of it is building those community connections, talking to folks and saying, Hey, you know, where do you get your hay and uh, stuff like that. So is it almost good to cycle through like a crop rotation for a year just to get all of that stuff out? Is that kind of what you did? Well, it cycled itself because it couldn't grow anything in it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess naturally. Yeah, a lot of it was um, laying out wood chips, trying to get it um, and just watching it, what would grow here, what wouldn't right? A lot of those things, corn would grow there, you know, cause they sprayed it for broadleaves, but you know, maybe corn would grow and uh, you know, and then cycling it until I saw some change. I was just thinking because we're, we're sort of talking about all these, uh, all these nuances of like of soil health and how you replenish the soil. And it kind of got me thinking about, cause I remember learning when I lived in Kansas about the large, and this probably isn't the same effect on the eastern side of Kansas as the western side, mm -hmm. but there is a large aquifer that runs under sort of the western side of Kansas and Colorado area. Yep. Cannot pronounce the name of it to save my life. Starts with an O. It's like Aglala or something like yep. that. Yeah, Aglala or something. It. Yeah, but and and this is more of like an open discussion to the room because I just had this thought of because of our current irrigation practices, like we are, we're depleting this aquifer pretty steadily over time and things like that. It's going to actually become a very big problem over the next, this century. And it sort of makes me wonder with the modern irrigation practices being pretty inefficient, especially at least out here in the West, it makes me wonder like, what are your thoughts on sort of these smaller, like you doing sort of your own operation versus these giant agricultural, um, you know, fields of just wheat and corn and just using all this water in the Midwest that's just going to be depleted 
It's sort of like how what's the long term strategy, I guess, uh, for what you're doing in in your area? Because I know you're currently taking in water from the county, right? That's what you said. Sure, but I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't spray that much, or you know, or water all that much. And uh, you know, most most of it comes as rain. So we don't get April showers bring May flowers. We get all of our rain pretty much in May and June as pretty significant mm-hmm. thunderstorms. And then in July and August, we'll get, you know, gully washer thunderstorms. But other than that, there's not a lot of rain in between October and, and the next May. So, um, a lot, a lot of it is using those wood chips to keep the moisture in the ground. And once again, getting back, getting back to community. So what, what can I grow? What can, I can't grow squash for the life of me because the squash bugs descend. I either brought in squash bugs or with some mulch or something and they just, they just descend and everybody says, well, you know, you can go out there and you can do this, you can do this and it doesn't work. So my squash gets to about maturity and then they stop. So I can form um, relationships with my friends and say, Hey, you know, I'll grow this, you grow squash and then we can trade. Right. And uh, so that's real important to do to get, like you said, back to that decentralized nature. Right. Um, As well as one of the things that I do is I go down to the local elementary school and my friend planted some chestnuts there years and years ago. And he thought, oh, well, I'm going to show the kids how to roast chestnuts by the open fire and at Christmas time. And the principal said, yeah, we're not doing that. Too many nut, nut allergies, too much challenge. And so nobody takes care of those trees and they're just bountiful with chestnuts. So I take them and put them in sand in buckets, grow out chestnuts and sell them, trade them, plant them and go to town for basically five minutes of me walking around picking them up. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think it goes back to, we talk about this a lot, but it's, yeah, I think it's really important. It goes back to sort of really embracing that hyper-localized level of your community and taking advantage of that and supporting each other. Because we live in this sort of fairy tale world, I think, of going to Walmart or uh, whatever your local target is selling and being able to buy whatever we want all the time. And it just, it doesn't make, in my mind, seeing the way things are going, you know, environmentally, uh, ecologically, uh, even, even within the economy, it doesn't seem sustainable in the long run with the growth of population and stuff like that. So it's really going to be interesting to see how more people like you kind of pop up and and realize like, hey, this is kind of the way to go for, you know, having a more fruitful future for everybody. Because I think we're sort of living in that in-between time of convenience. And we're going to see that it's kind of going to get a little darker before it gets brighter. Sure. And I think also you were talking about living in the, the fantasy world, if you were will about Walmart, the opposite side of the coin is don't become so prepper based that you think you're going to do it all yourself, right? I'm going to make my, I'm going to make my compound. I'm going to make, you know, that's one of the things that we really struggle with from in, you know, the freedom community, right? Everybody's trying to do it their own way. A lot of it is doing, like I said, get, get with your friends and say, Hey, you know, I've got, I've got chestnuts. I've got this. Will you trade me for squash? Yeah. And then the coolest thing is when you do a seed swap in the in the spring. So you get a seed swap in the spring. You're swapping seeds with folks. 
And then they, and then you see grown men get all excited. Wow. I've never seen that before. Can I get some of that? Right. So some obscure squash or, you know, candy cane mint or something like that. They uh, get all excited. It's, it's, it's hilarious. So I want to talk, yeah, maybe more about how, how did you build this local community or how did it come to fruition? I think a lot of people like you're saying, they kind of have this mindset that, yeah, they're going to build their fortress. They're going to be totally off the grid. And, and also people fear this uh, lack of social aspects. I mean, this is also because most like city people have never actually been in rural America. Like, you know, I have a house in a 2000 person town in, in Wyoming and it's actually a pretty connected society, right? Like everybody knows everybody, but I'm curious, you know, how that kind of has built uh, on your end, you know, are a lot of these people neighbors and that you're just connecting with them, just knocking on their door or, you know, going to community events. Like how are you kind of building this community um, because it is so important, like you're saying, you know, that's the power of, of working together. Then, you know, maybe you have someone who's handy and, you know, electrician or more of a mechanic or someone's got the equipment for one thing or another. And you kind of almost pool resources for the big jobs together and then it becomes more efficient. So, yeah, I'm curious how you kind of built that network in your local area. I think it's important to highlight this for people who don't really understand how this works. Yeah. So one of the ways is just you talk to your neighbors. Um, one of my friends, Perpend, who I started the podcast with, um, he uh, we met at the farmer's market and we're just standing around talking and um, and then said, hey, you know, I'm going to go to this. I'm going to go to this event. You want to go? And then we we went. And one of the things is that we started we started workshops where it's no one's an expert, but we're still going to get stuff done. Right. Everybody's waiting for the expert to show up to show them how to sharpen an axe. They're waiting for the expert to show up. Um, when you have chickens, if you hatch chickens, about 50 percent of them are going to be roosters. And you either can't have roosters in town or, you know, there's only so many roosters you can have in your flock until it becomes a problem. So you're going to have to harvest, you know, process whatever chickens um, instead of waiting around for a workshop that somebody else is putting on, who's an expert, you know, we had, uh, we had one guy said, yeah, I, I watched that done once, or we bring up a video on YouTube or whatever. And then we say, Hey, we're going to get together on my house on Saturday. We're going to, we're going to process some chickens. Right. And then, and then we just went through and, and the people who didn't know how to do it, we, we worked it out. It was messy at first. And it's something that if you don't do, every year, then you have to get reacquainted with it. But, uh, you know, we weren't waiting around for the expert, you know, and that's how we did it. Are you interested in 100% grass fed, grass finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, Bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Well, and fundamentally too, like if we go back to the very beginning of your story talking about your health, in many ways, like I'm sure you didn't find, I mean, maybe you were researching and you found AIP all by yourself, but I know through my like my own journey, it was really through the discussions with other people that were sort of dealing with the same problems 
background autoimmune disease for me, stuff like that. But it was dealing, I was talking to other people and trying to find out, hey, did this work for you? Kind of collaborating back and forth. I think that thing is very synergistic with sort of all these ideas of whether it's homesteading or just becoming more decentralized in general. It's about connecting with people face to face and not just over screens like everyone does right now or really connecting with quote creators that we think we know, but we don't really know anything about them other than what they post online. So it's, it's, and it's kind of a, it's almost weird that it's a backwards idea. I think today to talk about talking to people face to face, because it seems like it should be second nature. But I I always give the story of my brother uh, who has friends that live in the neighborhood. And the only time he actually ever sees them is on Xbox live. So it's, it's pretty funny how, how disconnected, how connectedly disconnected we are at the same time. And so I think, I think this is like a good fundamental skill for people, no matter what you're doing, whether you're sort of just getting into just canning stuff or jar, like trying to make, like just getting into any of this or wanting to do the whole thing is like, just get to know people in the community that are doing it online and then go to farmer's markets, meet those people, start collaborating back and forth. Me and Tristan talk about that all the time. And uh, that's kind of the path forward. Yeah. There's, there's, too much of the online and not in real life, right? So I'll be talking to someone online and they say, oh, yeah, I'm in Topeka. And I'm like, oh, you're only 20 miles that way. We need to meet up, right? And then mm-hmm. we'll we'll say, hey, we're going to have a meetup at the coffee shop on Saturday at 1030 in the morning, whoever whoever can come. And then we we set up a Telegram group and, and uh, you know, someone will invite their friend from church. They'll join the Telegram group. Once they figure out we're not weird, then they'll come over and, uh, you know, come to one of our workshops or come to a meetup or something. Right. And then you have you have your concentric circles, you know, of of uh, people you might let in your in your in your group or whatever else that, uh, you know, and then you you might get together and have a fire pit. Right. And sit around the fire pit one night. So and, and the stuff that used to be normal. Right. <laughs> oh, no, I was just I was just going to say, granted, like it was a skill that that I had to like relearn because I'm definitely one of those people that my my intuition is I want to sit in the dark room by myself and ruminate on my depressive thoughts. Mm hmm of the world. So I have to, I, I like, I had to force myself. I'll even say this. I had to force myself to meet Tristan like the first time I wanted to cancel too. Like the day of, I was like, hey, maybe I shouldn't go just like, but worked out. It's about the people you meet and that stuff that, that makes it at the end of the day. I think it shows a level of commitment too. It's, it's just putting yourself out there in this space, this realm of everything we do. Like, you know, there's, if you're kind of just in your normal historical friend group or family, like odds are you're probably the weirdest person like in the group, like, because just the majority of society just doesn't have the mindset or the interests of the things that we do because they don't really grasp the fundamentals of what's important like we do. So you really do have to put yourself out there. And I think it's the biggest challenge. I mean, it was a big challenge for me for the first two, three years but once you do and you start meeting people, it's almost like this momentum, this fiery momentum just keeps burning and you just get so excited. And then you realize how many other like-minded people there are out there. And then you can just build that network and that knowledge base from the ground up. And, and I think it's really powerful. And I'm curious as well, you know, if, if you've been doing this for a few years, have you noticed like an increasing desire 
for these skills, this life in general, um, kind of been growing since, you know, COVID has started? I'm assuming yes, but I'm curious what your, you know, feel is it on it because you're kind of on the ground, like doing this stuff all the time. Yeah. Well, um, (laughs) I don't mean to burst your bubble, but basically after COVID stopped, then people went back to their normal life and then it kind of decreased. Right. Ah. And then, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of people that were really interested in community when their backs were up against the wall. They thought they were going to lose their jobs. Right. And then uh, little by little, they either had to do whatever, you know, take whatever and, uh, you know, compromise or whatever. And uh, or they just got back to normal life afterwards. It wasn't as pressing. And so that's where you have to also be ready for the ebb and flow of the community, right? Because people move in, people move out, um, have, a, have, a, have events where we, we picked apples and then, and then uh, put them through the, uh, you know, the apple cider mill thing to make apple cider one year, right? And then uh, that was a really great uh, event that we wanted to keep going. And then, had not everybody was going to buy apple cider thing. Half of us wanted to go out and buy one ourselves, right? Because it goes back to, I want one of those, right? But have enough where, hey, he's got one. Hey, why don't we go all go in on a chicken plucker and get a nice chicken plucker? You know, one of the ones that it's actually called, what's funny is called Yardbird. So, uh, you know, it, it's got the little drum and the fingers and all that. And uh, so we went in with that together. You can get communal tools. You could even go some folks like down there, like John Bush down there in, uh, um, down there in Texas are, uh, going in on land together and then, and then farming it together or gardening it together and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting that you, you say that, cause that's sort of what I noticed, um, with friends of mine during COVID to post COVID as far as like, I saw a lot of them getting really hyped about sort of, I mean, I don't really know how much of it was actually really serious talk about like going off grid and all this stuff, but a lot of, a lot of conversations were going around. Then the minute things kind of realized like, oh, maybe it's not that bad. And then people start going back to the office. They kind of go back to their normal routine. They're Netflixing and chilling every night. And then all of a sudden it's like nothing really, really changed. I think that really shows too, though, through that process, the people that end up staying are probably the ones you end up want to end up talking to anyways, because they're mm-hmm. the ones that were serious in the first place. I feel like fear is a really powerful uh, instigator for people to change, but not always the most positive one. And also it doesn't necessarily bring out the best people in the community that you'd want to be there in the first place, depending. And I think you really want people that are going to be willing to learn and grow with you. Uh, And like you said, you really need that sort of cohesive teamwork aspect of it in a community because no one person is going to have all the answers. It's not like I'm going to say, Hey, Tristan, I have this great idea. Let's move to Alaska and start Brown town and start our compound up in Northern Alaska, sort of like the Alaskan Bush people, which would be cool, but I don't think I could do it by myself or with Tristan alone. I mean, he can carry some heavy things, but don't get me wrong. I don't think we could, I don't think we could flesh it out all the way. One thing I wanted to sort of get into too, is you have your own podcast. 
Thriving the Future podcast. Tristan's been on there. Good episode. Um, I listened to it earlier today to sort of get a little familiar. But um, what was sort of what what really drew you to podcasting? I'm sure we kind of had this uh, little pre-show talk me and you about having conversations with people and sort of just getting people comfortable and sort of getting to that situation that for me, it's all about getting a little uncomfortable, but also just meeting new people and hearing new ideas. So I'm sure it was somewhat similar for you, but what sort of brought that about and uh, what have you learned from doing podcasting? Sure. So we've been going since uh, November, 2021, and this was still right before the big vax mandate, right? And one of the things we were doing is my friend Perpin and I um, started, we were having conversations in the car on the way to functions or, you know, workshops or whatever else. But we were having conversations that didn't sound like everybody else's podcasts, you know, because everybody else was having the, you know, and stuff, or even the, the prepper stuff or, or the usual homestead stuff. We were talking about community and I'd never heard this kind of stuff before, right? We were talking about, having workshops where, where where nobody's an expert, where everybody else is, you know, realistically in the homestead space, uh, everybody makes their money, not on the podcast, but they make their money off the workshops that they have around the podcast and stuff. So we were having these conversations. We just turned on the Zoom recorder and started recording ourselves. And, uh, and we went on for, um, and then he decided he, um, he wanted to move to uh, uh, Orthodox religious community in Kansas city. And then he's on the monastic path to become a monk. So I'm like, uh, you know, what do I do with the podcast now? So I started, this was last, um, last year in July. So I started just talking to normal other people instead of getting the, we were talking in the pre-show about uh, most podcasts. They're the same folks rotating around. Right. And uh, I like to, um, talk to someone that I liked his tweet and I wanted to talk to him about it. Right. So Fox twin hollow, uh, Roman, we were, he, he tweeted a couple weeks ago about, um, climate change and about how, what he was doing to help kids cope with climate anxiety. So we just had a conversation about it. We didn't, we didn't bitch about climate change. <laughs> We didn't do any of that stuff that you would normally hear on a on a right leaning podcast, right? And uh, you know, we were just talking about, hey, what do you do? And he says, I I take kids out to the woods and show them trees, and you know, and uh, he had something where um, he was a teacher at a school, and and the whole school took off for a protest, and he took the bus of kids to the to the woods, and they planted trees. So everybody else at the whole school was over there doing uh, doing protesting, and he's planting trees. So, you know, we're, we just talked about stuff like that. We didn't even, you know, dive into the usual things that people argue about on climate change. And it was it was refreshing because one of the things we focus on is, is positive solutions, right? Instead of everybody's complaining, it's the outrage of the day. Every. <laughs> Twitter is just the outrage of the day and everybody's talking about the outrage of the day. That's not evergreen content. It won't, you know, you can't listen to that six months from now and it'll, it'll matter. Right. Um, and so we were talking about community. We were talking about this other stuff and, uh, and then I'll talk to people that are not professional podcasters and I have to turn the mic on and, and let them talk 
until they don't realize they're on a mic anymore. Right. And then, and then we have a normal conversation and I'll edit it a little bit and then put it, put it, uh, upload it. So, uh, that way it allows me to talk to folks about different things. Um, you know, how, how do we bring, how do we bring back tradition through communities? That was one a couple weeks ago as well, you know, stuff like that. And, and that's, uh, when I saw Tristan's uh, posts, I thought that would be an interesting conversation. So I reached out to him. Yeah, no, it's so refreshing to hear this, to be honest, because I, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. It's really a shame. Um, even the people that are quote unquote awake, they're so, they're just so negative. They have this just like doom and gloom mindset. It's almost like they want the world to end. And then they just fixate on the negative of what's going to happen. When in reality that like what you just said of um, Roman, everyone's over here protesting. They're just worrying about the things that are out of their control. And here he is actually making a difference in the world, taking action on what he can control because the only things that are in your control are what you can personally have an impact on. And that's in your local environment. You don't have any control over who's getting elected. To be honest, really your ballot matters, not that much. Your consumer Mm -hmm. purchasing dollar matters probably way more. And maybe in your local elections, you can have some influence, but at the higher level, right, left, it doesn't matter. What matters is kind of how you go about living your daily life. And if you do that with such a negative mindset, of course, you're just going to keep driving yourself crazy. And I'm a firm believer in just like positive affirmations will drive positive change. And even if that's in your little hyper local circle, that can make a big difference over a long period of time. So it's so true, um, especially the, yeah, the carousel of, of podcast guests and yeah, community matters so much. And I'm glad we talked about that because it's just a thing that people don't really talk about a lot. And it's probably, you know, social connection, whether that be for health or for sanity or in general, it's one of the most important aspects of of life. And that's why it sounds like you have a really strong grasp on that, which is fantastic. That's also why Ryan, Ryan and I are doing like a road trip through Wyoming in a, a couple of weeks because we want to connect with people in person locally that um, are very, you know, interesting to talk to and also value decentralization. So they're not all of them are, are you know, regular podcasters reach out to a few people as well. And they're like, well, I've, I've never been on a podcast before. Like, I, you know, what, what am I supposed <laughs> to say? Like, are you going to send me? questions i was like no like we'll just have a conversation because clearly you have a lot of knowledge to communicate you have a unique perspective you have a unique unique backstory everybody you know has a unique uh backstory of how they got to this point this mindset and you know it all rhymes but at the end that one unique perspective could empower another person who's listening to take a step in the right direction. And, and, and that's what it's all about. It's, it's just empowering people to actually take an actionable change, not just scaring them because like you said, they're scared. Oh, and then the fear kind of fades away. Then they're not really fundamentally here for the right reason. So if you, you know, you say you're bursting my bubble, the, a lot of the COVID people kind of went back to their normal centralized lives 
that's probably for good reason because you know they were just there for fear not really fundamentally for the right reason so you know maybe we just need to do a better job of, of convincing them why this stuff matters you know fundamentally and it's a positive outlook not one from just fear of uncertainty of the future sure and that's why the name of your podcast is so great thriving the future not you know, surviving the future. <laughs> yeah, there's a book called Surviving the Future, which is, uh, it's it's a good book, but, you know, I wanted to go and and take it a step further and thrive, right? So we, you know, we had some prepper guys that, uh, that joined our Telegram group. Somebody invited them and uh, we're talking about community and they go, what are you guys talking about community for? I want somebody to go shoot with, right? And we're like, so we're still talking about community. We're talking about farming and stuff. And they threw up their hands and said, uh, you guys are freedom farmers, not freedom fighters. We're out. <laughs> so it's like, okay, bye. <laughs> you know, like it, it's good to know all that stuff, right? Obviously, you know, you need to know how to have yeah, self-defense sure. and no question, to, you know, operate, but at, what are the odds? What are the odds that, you know, it comes to your doorstep versus, and even if it does, you're going to have a fighting chance versus if you're just, you know, self-sustaining and actually empowering other people and then building a community, which will then inherently be stronger together. Right. Oh no. I was just going to say on top of that too, like a lot of those sort of the, I don't know if fear monger is the right word, but the people that, that sort of makes me think of my, my great uncle who's no longer with us, but um, he, he was sort of one of those people that always assumed like the, like the government was going to, come after him one day. So he had like tons of guns, uh, freaking, he was diabetic to know, like crazy diabetic, crazy, like high blood, like tons of medical, like chronic illnesses and stuff like drink beer all the time, but like just watch the news all the time and just basically yelled with his shotgun in his hand at the TV, like actually, like actually a true story, like just right. yelling at the TV with a shotgun. And, and sort of, that's not necessarily like, do you want to survive in the future alone? Or it, sure. they sort of miss the community part. And that's sort of what we've been talking about. Right. And we're, you know, one of the things that's this week, you know, we don't avoid the tough subjects, but we don't, you know, it's it's not negative. So this week we're talking about depression on the homestead. Hey, it's real stuff, right? You know, the guy gets a uh, homestead padre, he gets almost all of his uh, money from or his income from, uh, working at the farmer's market and, uh, and then he got a goat and then the goat ate his garden, <laughs> which is a zincrum stream. And, uh, you know, so I, I jokingly said, so you just had to get a goat, didn't you? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But, and we, we talked, we talked through it. So, you know, how do you handle it? And, uh, and we talked and it was, it was a good conversation. No, I was just going to say, I think it's good to be solution focused, not necessarily like, I, I think so many people are, are crisis focused. I mean, that's just based on the world we live in. Everyone runs by headlines. Right. And I think the smartest decision, if, if anyone could make one change in their life, like right now, and people probably watching this already have done it, but I think one of the smartest things I ever did for my mental health, physical health, or just sanity was turning off the TV. Mm -hmm. And just focusing on what I can do for myself and the people around me. Because outside of that, like Tristan was saying, there there actually isn't much you can physically change. Right. And there's no real point being scared of it all the time and letting it run your life. Because the true 
power from people that don't want you to do the things that you're doing right now, Scott, are people that want you to fear all the things that are on the news that create inaction. And I think the greatest power in fear is creating inaction in the masses. And so it's about getting that 5% of people that are kind of tuning that out to continue making the changes that are positive for themselves and their local community. And this is the whole thing. So, you know, on, on telegram groups or whatever else we, we stress, Hey, I want to see what you're doing. I want to see cool things you tried like Homestead Padre. He's still sticking with the goats. He took a, he took a big stick and he taped it onto the goat's head. So it couldn't get through a certain part of the fence. Right. You know, stuff like that. And it's like, um, there's too many people posting memes and they, the outrage of the day, they post a meme and they get that dopamine hit and then they, they think they did something. I'm making a difference. I'm opening, I'm awakening people. And then they go back to whatever they were doing. And it's like, did you actually do anything? So, you know, so we're like, Hey, if you're going to post something, post what you did. I want to see what, I want to see what, you know, what welding you did. I want to see. We've, we've got a guy, Shudra, who's from Australia, and he's like doing, um, he, he's doing aquaponics. He's doing crazy stuff down there. And he's got a kangaroo that moved in and is living in his uh, pasture there and, and and stuff. And he's just like, and then all of a sudden one day it turns out the kangaroo was pregnant all this time and pops out a little Joey and, you know, and stuff. So he's taking pictures of that and showing it. And, you know, that's we're talking about what we're doing. We're talking about our, our projects. We're talking about our wins. We're talking about our losses. Right. But you know, it's not third party. It's not waiting for somebody to do something. Right. Yeah. I, I think that authenticity is so valuable. I mean, I see it all the time in kind of the traditional health masculinity space right now. It's all talk and I don't see any proof of work really it's like going to the gym sure but like everyone's romanticizing you know this traditional lifestyle oh i want a traditional woman i want to live in the countryside i want to do all this none of them are really taking actionable steps to pursue this lifestyle it's all just for you know that dopamine that following and that you know they're posting stoic quotes but they really don't know the second thing about adversity or putting themselves in in you know, the, the realms of nature and, and actually connecting with that on a real level. Cause the real men are not posting memes and stoic quotes. They're just doing shit. They're getting stuff done. And I really just, it gets me fired up. And that's why I always post like what I'm doing and what I'm learning. Cause it's like, yeah, like I'm on this path of, of learning and, and becoming more, you know, decentralized and empowered as an individual. And it's a long journey, but you really have to kind of put in the work to, to get there. It doesn't just come by, by reading some quotes. Those are all written by men who accomplished so many great things that you can't even fathom, really. And, you know, fundamentally, on the topic of, of proof of work, we, we talked about it a little bit on, on your podcast, but, you know, how do you see the value of, of, of Bitcoin kind of in this space and what's the feedback from the homesteading community on Bitcoin and uh, kind of being a solution to a fiat monetary system that's clearly very fragile right now. Yeah, well, it was real interesting. So, you know, everybody's still 
you know, pretty much using the exchanges and, and Bitcoin went up 5% today. But if you're, if you're trading things, then what is the real, it's like the barter blanket, right? I don't know if you've ever done a barter blanket. So you lay a blanket out on the table, you got a whole group of friends, right? They bring their goods, whether it's uh, sauerkraut they made, whether it's, you know, uh, chestnut tree seedling, or whether it's uh, some mercury dimes with real silver, right? Um, everybody brings different things. I put on there that I've made, I've got some homemade vinegar that I made myself. What do you guys What do you guys want to trade for it? You know, somebody put some shotgun shells. Somebody put some uh, um, mercury dimes on there. Somebody put something else, right? Um, and they're they're deciding what value is based on what they think it is. I think this vinegar is worth shotgun shells, but I don't need shotgun shells. So, you know, that doesn't have much value to me. Would you take that a step further for Bitcoin? And even you can even create your own coins. You know, what's, what's the value is, is Bitcoin worth 12, whatever it is, you know, I I think it's almost $20,000, right? Or maybe it's up to 30 now. I haven't looked today, but the, um, is it worth that? Or is it worth this many, um, you know, this many uh, pies? <laughs> I brought some pies. Hey, I'll trade you some Bitcoin for it or some BCH, you know, and or I bring some uh, some chestnut seedlings. You know, is it worth uh, that equivalent in dollars or is it worth, you know, X Bitcoin, right? So I say, hey, I'll trade you this for, you know, zero point whatever BCH, right? So it's it's worth twenty dollars, right? Um, I had problems when I did that online because some or, or in person, not necessarily online, but uh, you know, and Bitcoin changed during the day, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a minute, you know, it's not it's not the same amount now. You're ripping me off. I'm like, I quoted you what it was. Is it worth? what it is today at five o'clock or is it worth this tree is, is 0.05 BCH worth this many dollars or is it worth this tree? And then you, that blows your mind when you get to that point, because that's the next step, right? Because exchanges are going to eventually get screwed. You know, I had, I had Cyprian on a few months ago when he was saying the, the, the banks, the small banks that are that are collapsing in California, a lot of them fund crypto companies. And you may have your stuff in your own wallet, but then that wallet company went bankrupt because they can't pay, because they can't pay their hosting and they can't pay their people because their their bank collapsed. And to get the government to bail that bank out it actually has in the criteria that they can't loan and do business in crypto or with crypto companies anymore. So, you know, so you get into this thing where we are facing, are we going to still use Bitcoin if it, if it's not an exchangeable on the exchange system, right? Oh, will we use Bitcoin if it's just between you and me? And that's the next step that people have to get to, Right whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's your own coin you make up, whatever, right? So, sorry, that was a long story, but... No, I think it's important is is the circular economy needs to... 
it needs to be strong enough to sustain the value of sure. the coin itself or the currency, right? So I think the saliency of economics in general is, is important there because you need that medium of exchange, but you need enough people to be bought into understanding and using it and not hoarding it like many Bitcoiners do. So, you know, it's, it's a great point. Are you, are you a Bitcoin cash guy? Is that what you're saying? I use Bitcoin cash. Yeah. I got the, well, yeah, I've got everything, but yeah. Okay. Like uh, if I'm going to trade for a tree, I'll usually use Bitcoin cash. Interesting. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, I, we won't delve into did the I, specifics. Did I fall but, in your, did I, um, did I decline in your, uh, <laughs> well, it's just the, the Bitcoin maximalism argument as, as always, but, um, no, this, it's totally fine. I think understanding anything about Bitcoin and its value, you're, ahead of 99% of the curve and just the more people we can get on board on why the current financial system, monetary system is on stilts right now. And it's going to be kind of, yeah, it it will be a a crazy few years, but again, it's like, or who knows? We don't know. That's why I don't like to be sensationalist about the future and in the negative direction because we don't know how things are going to unfold but you can feel a bit more confident when you have kind of like an alternative route to pursue. And and for me, that's Bitcoin. For me, that's, you know, building passive income streams. That's, you know, working for yourself, for example, not a company, not a corporation. These are how you get outside of the centralized system. And then you don't have as much to stress about, but if you're on one income, one salary, all your money's in USD, then yeah, I'd be pretty damn scared as well about Mm -hmm. the future. So you need to become more resilient in order to be less stressed. Otherwise, yeah, you're not really helping yourself. So that that's how I see it. Right. Yeah. And if I, if I, you know, I, when I sell trees or whatever, I'll, I'll do it in BCH, but then I'll convert it back into something else. But, you know, so, I mean, it's a, uh, it's proof of work. And then taking it to the next step where yeah. your community is proof of work. You know, the dude showed up when my refrigerator broke down. Uh, the day after Christmas, my uh, water main broke going into my house. Two guys from my community came over. We dug it up. We fixed it. <laughs> you know, it was like six feet down. So, you know, that's that's taking it and then making proof of work for the community as well. Right. hundred percent. And I think that's a great way to wrap this up. I mean, proof of work is so powerful on all levels and positivity is contagious. So don't live a fear mongered kind of negative life that is just constantly worrying about the future, what's going to happen, control what you can control in, in your sphere of influence, and then prepare yourself so you can be less stressed. But at the same time, embrace community because at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones that can pull you up in the time of need and alleviate a lot of those stressors, right? That's kind of what you've highlighted here. I think it's super important. It's super powerful. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about is kind of all pulling each other up uh, and facing and kind of stepping outside of this centralized, highly controlled system that we've all been raised in and kind of been at the whims of for the past few decades that's lowered our quality of life. So Scott, thanks so much for coming on. I think it was super insightful for people who are kind of interested in homesteading um, and really shared some valuable lessons. So 
let everyone know where people can find you. It's Thriving the Future podcast, right? Um, yeah, Thriving the Future podcast. It's on your you? it's on your fave podcast app. It's also on thrivingthefuture.com. And then uh, they, it's uh, Thriving the Future on Twitter and Thriving the Future on Instagram. So come check us awesome. out. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, again, for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll thanks see you next time. Me.